This episode is brought to you by NordVPN. Listen up, nerds. No. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, from border to border and coast to coast and all the ships at sea. What? Hello, friends. Do you have a computer? Of course you do, because it's not 1987. Hell, you're listening to this on some kind of computer right now. But do you have a VPN? Oh, (laughs) what's a VPN, you ask? Well, my friend, a VPN is a virtual private network and it offers two key benefits. Enhanced privacy and security online. But VPNs do a lot more than that. VPNs shield your IP address, change your browsing location, and make online life easier. It's all about safety and security, my friends. But, like everything else in life, it's also about watching TV. Don't let your paid subscriptions go to waste. I use NordVPN to access my home content while I'm traveling. Wink, wink. Plus, secure your connection on public Wi-Fi in airports, hotels, cafes, anywhere you go when you're traveling. There's over 6,300 servers in 111 countries, and you can find a nearby server for the best VPN speeds. NordVPN is easy to use. Connect with one click or enable auto-connect for zero-click protection. And it's got amazing speed. NordVPN is one of the fastest VPNs out there. And with just one NordVPN account, you can use it on six devices. It supports every major platform, Windows, Android, iOS, Mac OS, Linux, even Android TV. I think those are all real. Don't miss out on all the awesome benefits for using a VPN. Go to nordvpn.com ifanboy today for a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee. The link's in the show notes. Once again, that's nordvpn.com ifanboy. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Um, you ever feel like you really need to get something off your chest? This is this this is a, like a real thing. Like, if you're mad, if you're upset, if uh, if there's something going on, like the I, there's there's often for me an idea. Maybe it's a wrong. Maybe it's a moment. It's it's an injustice. It's something that because you, you keep going on and on over and over in your mind about it, and like that can create anger and resentment or shame, whatever it is. And very often. I have found, I am not a therapist, I have found that when you let it out, when you give it voice, when you say it out loud, um, sometimes it makes you feel better because you've, you've expressed it. And sometimes it makes you realize like, oh, this is not a big deal that I've, it's been stuck in my head. So you give voice to those things um, and it can make you feel a lot better. And shock of all shocks, therapy is one of those things that can help you do that. It can help you be able to say those things in a place where you don't need to worry about the repercussions of it, work your way through it, uh, figure out coping skills, how to get around it, you know, find, find ways to deal with that stuff instead of letting it fester. Um, if you are thinking of starting therapy, uh, if anything I said sounds familiar, you're like, oh, maybe my life would be a little better if I could deal with that kind of thing. You should give BetterHelp a try. It's fully online. It is convenient, flexible. It is suited to your schedule. That's the idea. That's what they're going for. Um, you can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. That's a big deal. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. That that personal connection, I believe, to be super important. Again, I'm not a professional. Uh, get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash iFanboy today. You get 10% off your first month. That is BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash iFanboy. You are listening to iFanboy.com's Talksplode. I am Josh Flanagan. Today we are talking to Ed Brubaker, writer on Captain America, Daredevil, Incognito, the upcoming Marvel's project, and the web series Angel of Death. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com, and I'm here with Ron Richards. Hey, Josh. And our guest today on Talksplode is Ed Brubaker. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How you guys doing? Very good. Um, you are a busy guy. 
I'm, I'm going through trying to come up with questions and stuff that you're looking at. And there's like, there's so many projects that I could talk about with you. I, I imagine that, that that's, that you've got stuff going on constantly now. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get to a point where I only have to work on one thing at a time, which I'm getting pretty close to being there. I think by the end of this month, I'll be at a point where I don't have to work on part of an issue of this and then jump over to put to finish an issue of, Captain America or something. So is that tough creatively to like switch gears between projects? Or I mean, is is it you know can you be in cap mode and then quickly switch back to incognito, or is it better to space them out? Um, it's not that tough. I've been doing it on and off for years. I prefer to spend you know like one week one project and then kind of go on to the next project and do it that way, just because I think you get a little bit more. Um, just focus in what you're doing but the hardest part is the the outlining like once i've figured out what's going on in the in the issue that's that's the real work is is the thinking part the actual typing of the script takes three or four days and you do a lot of thinking there but once you kind of know where you're beginning and where you're ending for that issue that it's not as hard to go like halfway through the issue and then stop and jump over to work on something else um it's hard to work on multiple outlines at the same time. You, you really can only be thinking about one story while you're figuring out what's going to happen in that issue. And so that, that kind of, you know, I try to always make sure when I finish one thing, I have the outline for whatever I have to start next already ready. But I've run into a few times just because of business trips or conventions or something where, where I end up not having enough time to, to have that. And so I have to sit down and outline an issue of Daredevil and then an issue of Incognito or Criminal or, you know, and just sit there. And, and that, that can be difficult. I'll, I'll have days where I just sit on the couch and stare at the ceiling and, you know, <laughs> I'm really working, but it just doesn't look like it. That's actually a question, something I've, I've run up against. Like, when you've got to plan what's going to happen, I mean, how do you do? Do you sit down in front of the computer and just try to hack it out or you just, you you know, go on walks and try to think of stuff or mostly i i sit around or I, I have a really small dog so often i'll just lie on the couch with the dog there and, and just sort of pet the dog and figure out how you know what part of the story i'm stuck on um but i, I never start typing until i fit until i know what order the scenes are going to go in I'm, i don't know any of the dialogue or the narration or anything like that when i start typing but i know what the scenes are and what order they're going to be in and that's that's really the important part to me do you take notes uh, you know do you keep a notebook around and always have oh yeah down or... yeah i have i have tons of notebooks that's that's the job <laughs> really more than anything is is notebooks i i'm i'm constantly running out of notebooks as it turns out too <laughs> every i have i have you know, different notebooks for different projects. Like I have a couple different Captain America notebooks now, and I had a whole notebook that was all just sleeper. And I think I might have even done some of the authority in that. Um, but yeah, I just I just have tons of notebooks, and so when I travel, I end up having to bring like two or three notebooks with me, just because I'm if I'm working on different projects, I have to bring them with me. Now, can it just be any notebook, or do you need a specific brand and type? <laughs> Such a nerd. I actually need a, a like a college ruled uh, spiral binder kind of thing, yeah. but just 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 because that's the, what I got used to working on. It's it's getting harder and harder to find good notebooks. I have to say, like I go to the like Office Depot or something, and it's it's, it's appalling that the that they don't make you know notebooks with enough pages or enough lines on them anymore. I don't. I guess computers have ruined everything as usual. Yeah. <laughs> 
it's great. I've lost the ability to, hand, to write by hand completely, so I'm fine yeah. with that. Yeah, <laughs> I've never been able to. I used to write my scripts by hand when I was a cartoonist. Like I would just write the. I would do a little sort of very brief outline, similar to what I do now, and then I would just handwrite all the dialogue and panel descriptions and stuff for myself. Even though the panel descriptions would often be almost nothing because I was going to draw it myself, but. Um, but I, but my, I, I typed so much faster than I wrote by hand. I tried to write by hand recently, and it was just not even worth it. I, I just, I kept getting ahead of myself and writing the wrong words and feeling like a dyslexic or something. So, <laughs> I definitely like to have my my outline next to the computer and and just be able to sort of reference it and and just just really burn through on the typing. Um. So I, one of the reasons I guess we're talking to you is is because of the Angel of Death series, which is sort of one of the big uh, high profile projects you've been you've been had lately. I assume that you're you're pretty much done with that for the time being. Yeah, I mean, there's talk of of maybe doing a sequel, but um, yeah, I did that last. Uh, I started that in August. I wrote it for like most of August and like mm-hmm. most of September, and then they started filming right after that. Um, was that a story that you'd had, or did it come about when you the, the opportunity came up to to get something made? It was it was an idea that I had jotted down, and like a, I have a notebook where I just write down like crime ideas and and uh, you know ideas for movies sometimes mm-hmm. that I may or may never ever get around to writing a spec. And that was a, a spec idea that I had, or or it was maybe going to be an, an arc of criminal or something like that, and. It was about a hitman who who gets brain cancer originally, and then I was talking to someone about it, and they suggested that brain cancer was perhaps not a very sexy thing to have in your story. And and then I remembered this uh, documentary I'd seen on PBS like years and years ago about a guy who got stabbed in the brain with a with a uh, hunting knife and just walked into the ER. It was like this series they were doing about an ER, and that was one of the episodes with just this guy walking in at the beginning with a with a knife sticking out of the top of his head, and I thought well, that would be kind of cool. Instead of brain cancer, what if what if it was like a hitman who got stabbed in the brain? And then I just never did anything with it. And uh, John Norris, the producer on Angel of Death, was approaching me to see about getting the rights to Criminal to do for an internet series. And um, I was already in negotiations with with a variety of people on some of those books, so I couldn't do that and wasn't sure I'd want to anyway. And then he mentioned that they'd been talking to Zoe Bell about doing something, and, and I was a huge fan of hers from um, Double Dare and Xena and Death Proof, and so I was I was just like, oh well, why don't I just create something for her? And, and like the next day, I gave him this pitch for Angel of Death, and and uh, I just you know I had instantly thought, well, that'd be a really cool thing for Zoe Bell. What if she was like a hit woman who gets stabbed in the brain? And and. Uh, so I just sent that in, and, and kind of miraculously, they loved it, and everybody at Sony loved it, and Zoe loved it, and it just kind of went off without a hitch, which is not usually how things go in Hollywood. Uh, wh- what was it like, I guess, working on a project that has so many other people involved with it as opposed to a comic book, where it's just sort of you and an artist and maybe an editor? Um, they both have their advantages. I mean, I don't, I don't often like... I don't I don't get a lot of dumb notes on my comic stuff. I try to tend to write bulletproof scripts and and really talk out what I'm going to do with my editors ahead of time so they're not surprised by what I'm doing. Um the horror stories of Hollywood that you hear are are stuff like that where it's like the the studios give you really stupid notes or this or that. But I didn't actually run into any of that on Angel like 
I know Paul, our director, had like some notes meetings with Sony after my first draft or after my my like episode outline thing, and and he sort of encapsulated all of that into like a page or, or two of you know here's what you know here's what the notes are, and and most of them were stuff that I I agreed with, and if there was something I didn't agree with, I could explain why I didn't agree with it, and didn't really get a lot of flack, so. I, I didn't mind it, and I liked being on set and and you know seeing the the filming of it and everything. It was a lot of fun. It's you know I, I'm a, I'm more of a control freak, so there were moments where I was like, oh, I would have inflected that word differently or something. But you know that's film, and everybody it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, all the seeing the actors sort of bring their own interpretation to to the to the story that you wrote is is part of the the magic of it, I think, and and. Um, I don't know. I, 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 they each have their, you know, it was good after that to be able to go back and sit in my room and just, and just write and, and, you know, know exactly what I was going to get. But, you know, even with comics, you don't, you don't always get exactly what you expect it to be. You know, Sean often will draw a panel completely differently than I pictured it in, in this, when I was writing the script. And that doesn't, you know, that's, that's kind of the collaboration part of it. And often what he draws is better than how I was picturing it. You know, most of the time it is. Every now and then it's not. And I'm like, hey, can you fix that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you said that the experience with Angel of Death was, you know, it wasn't very uh, stressful. There wasn't a lot of changes. Do you think that's because it was being made for distribution on the Internet? Do you think Sony let it kind of be on its own a little more? Or, or um, do you think that they treated it just like a movie? I think they treated it just like a movie. It's, I mean, it was lower budget. It was a million dollar budget or just over a million dollars. And so I think any million dollar picture gets a little bit less people looking at it than a $50 million picture. But also Michael Stradford and Robbie Huckle, who were the guys who sort of spearheaded the project through Sony, were really big supporters of it and big fans of my comic stuff. And Paul and, and John were big fans of my comic stuff. And we all were on the same page about what kind of movie we wanted to make. And, you know, we got Ron Yuan, who's this fantastic stuntman and stunt coordinator, who, you know, everybody was kind of doing it because they wanted to do it. And everybody wanted to make something really cool. And I think the fact that it was going to be on the Internet and that they were... You know, you can't discount the fact that they were trying to get some product for the internet really quick after the writer's strike. You right. know, and Dr. Horrible had come out and done so well. And, and you know, it's just, I, I think the fact that we were on such a tight schedule maybe helped on some level because, like, I, you know, they started filming two weeks after my final draft was turned in. And I wrote hmm. three drafts in, you know, six or seven weeks while I was writing like three or four comics at the same time. So it was, it was a busy time. I mean, when I was done with my final draft, I could, I felt like my eyes could barely see. <laughs> but um, I think it was, you know, partly that they just wanted to create something really cool and, and, and do something, you know, different for the internet that, you know, we don't have any people standing there talking to a camera or, or anything, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. Dr. Horrible does that a few times and it's really yeah. great, but I felt like so much of what was on the internet as far as as entertainment created for the internet was all about being the internet. It's like if every comic book was about it, the fact that it was a comic book too, you know, at some point the characters notice that they're in panels or something and it's like so much of, of internet entertainment was people talking directly to the camera and we just made a movie. You know, which I thought was really cool that, you know, we were basically saying, well, the, as far as I'm concerned, the Internet is just a middleman getting product from, you know, from creator to viewer. And, you know, 
I mean, seven million people have watched Angel of Death now, so that's wow. a lot of movies that come out. <laughs> that's great. So, so you get yeah. feedback on how on, on how many people have viewed it and what the kind of you know yeah, it's been out for a few here, weeks now. Here and there, like we knew Sony had ideas about how many people would watch it during the first two months, and I think we blew past that before even the oh. first week was over. Like, oh, that's great. Did, yeah, I mean, you, you create something cool for the internet, and anybody can see it, you know, just about. I mean, though not in Europe, apparently, as I heard from a lot of friends complained. <laughs> but I think hopefully that'll be rectified soon. But yeah, I think, you know, I wish they'd put it on iTunes, too, for downloads, because I know a lot of people would prefer to download stuff than stream it. That was my, my one complaint that I would have with Sony, was that once we'd gone through the two weeks on Crackle, I wish they'd also offered it for, you know, like downloads for iPods and iPhones and stuff. But, you know, we've had a ton of views, and it's gotten a, it's gotten me a lot of notice in Hollywood, that's for sure. So, so for, there's for something more, made for a million dollars, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> this is going to be more screenwriting in the future then, I assume? I hope so, yeah. I like <laughs> I like doing it. Was it a, is it a different writing process of doing that? Or, or did, I mean, did it feel like a, like a, like a new uh, sort of set of muscles to be flexing? Um... Not not so much. I mean, I've written screenplays before just for stuff that hasn't gotten made or at least hasn't gotten made yet. And um, like six or seven years ago, I had a had a short story that Jason Lutz and I did called The Fall, optioned by David Goyer, and he sort of trained me in screenwriting like during this, this process. Like I wrote like three different drafts of that sort of under his tutelage and... and so I knew, you know, how to screenwrite, and and I actually think screenwriting in in a lot of ways is easier than comic yeah. book writing because you don't because have to, you stop don't have to isolate those moments. But there's things you can do in comics that you can't get away with in screenwriting too. So you know, you can't get away with the heavy narration as much, you know, unless you're Wong Kar Wai, and <laughs> um, and you know, there's just certain things that that make. You know, I think you can get more information across in a comic book than you can in a film a lot of the time. So there's there's different, you know, each stage have their different challenges, but the easiest part of writing for me is generally once I've figured everything out, just writing and screenwriting, you know, with comics writing, the, the thing about dialogue is you want to write dialogue that sounds real but doesn't take up too much space in each panel or each or each page. So it has to, it's a real challenge to write stuff that doesn't sound forced or too short, but also isn't too long. Whereas in screenwriting, you can let the conversations really breathe and be more real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's actually the biggest problem with the Watchmen movie was that they used the dialogue from the comic, which was intended to be read, not spoken. Yeah. And, you know, when I was watching Watchmen, I was just thinking, oh, I wish they'd rewritten all this dialogue so that it didn't <laughs> sound like... Alan Moore's, you know, very artfully written scene transition dialogue that yeah. isn't, you know, when you read it out loud, even if you're Carla Gugino, and, you know, and you're a great actress and you're drop-dead gorgeous, it still sounds like, you know, dialogue written to be read on a page. And, it, yeah. it, you know. Absolutely. Just, that, they that were damned if really they did, damned me. if they don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I guess uh, switching back to comics... One of the things that that I've I've never actually we've never actually spoken to you about um, is the earliest thing I think that I know of that you did was a complete low life in which you you wrote and drew it. Now you're you're normally known as a writer, but I mean at a time you said earlier you were a cartoonist. Um, I mean, was that the first sort of major work that you did, or, or what was that born from? Were you were you trying to get in the comics with that, or? Um, well, I was 
you know, I, I started doing comics when I was a little kid, and I only started writing stories so I would have something to draw, really. And my uncle was a screenwriter, and so I always imagined that you could grow up to be a writer or an artist or, you know, I was I was sort of raised reading comics. And I think when I was, like, 19, I published a comic through Slave Labor called Purgatory USA that was sort of what low life grew out of. And then... Um, I guess most of my early 20s, so I was about 25 or 26, I would do, you know, a comic every every six months or so. I would publish an issue of Low Life, and that was a complete Low Life as a collection of, of the best of those right. things. Um, but I always felt very limited by my own artistic abilities. My my art tend, tended to grow out of, you know, wanting to be either Gilbert Hernandez or Dan DiCarlo, and, you know, you can only do so much with a very... Art, you know, at least I could only do so much with this sort of, you know, Archie-like art style. And <laughs> I had a lot of ideas for stories that I didn't have the ability to draw at all. And, you know, I think I quit cartooning just at the point where I was starting to get good at it, actually. But I was also starting to get a lot of paying writing work. People would read my comics and ask me to do a story for them. And I started collaborating with people. And it was so much more satisfying in some ways to write a story and have Eric Shanauer draw it or have, you know, Sean Phillips or Michael Lark draw these things and, you know, and they could come out on a regular schedule as opposed to like twice a year. And with my cartooning, I knew it was going to take me, you know, four to six months at least to draw a single issue just because I was not, you know, very disciplined with it. And I, I was always unhappy with what I was doing. So I just labored over it. And so to sit and write a story that you knew was going to take that long, it got to the point where I could never finish a script that I thought was worth spending that amount of time on. And, you know, and just as you get older, the things that you're interested in change. I, I was, I like to refer to it as being comics journal damaged from the point where I was like about 16 till I was about 25. And, <laughs> and I, I felt like everything that you did had to be this very important high art kind of thing. And, I'd kind of turned my back on a lot of the things that I actually enjoyed in life. And, you know, I realized I enjoyed good science fiction. I enjoyed good crime fiction. And I enjoyed, you know, a lot of different stuff, and you know, other than, you know, reading Bukowski all the time or some crap like that. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it just, I think I, I got to a point where I could re-embrace the, the, the qualities of comic books that I had that I had loved growing up. And, you know, I mean, I'm not the world's hugest superhero comic fan, but I like adventure fiction and I like science fiction and, you know, I like stuff like that when it's good. I mean, 98% of everything is crap, but, you know, Philip K. Dick is great most of the time and, and you know, yeah. same, same with James P. Blaylock and Tim Powers and, you know, there's a lot of authors that I read now that I would have just turned my nose up at when I was 25. You know, even Ross MacDonald, who was probably the biggest influence on my writing, I wouldn't have given the time of day before I was, you know, before I had kind of decided to re-embrace that kind of pulp roots of, of you know, my childhood. It, it's funny because, I, I mean, when I first sort of started reading your stuff, which is probably around 2000 or so, uh, you know, everything was very... There was a lot of sort of street level stuff, and you know you're you're known as a crime book guy. And then yeah. as your careers progressed, like you 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 know you start doing the Authority, and then you you know you do the X Men. Was that, I mean, was that stuff that you'd always? I guess I guess eventually you didn't want to do it at first, but I mean, did you surprise yourself by by you know doing good jobs with that stuff or sort of getting out of your comfort zone? I guess. 
Um, well, kind of. I mean, I, I'm not really surprised. I always try to, I remember Alan Moore in some interview talked about how he kind of wanted to do every genre and do it as well as he could. And that's how, that's kind of how I always felt when I was, you know, especially back before I started working on The Authority. I just, you know, I've, I've for years always said that I would love to do a romance comic because I love those old John Romita romance comics and yeah. we always forget that Kirby didn't just create the Fantastic Four and the New Gods, he also created romance comics mm. and um, you know, I like I like every genre about uh, of comics, I would I would you know, I always joke that when I retire I'm going to write Jughead comics for a living and that's my <laughs> idea of retirement and it's pretty true though, I mean that's, that would be my idea of retirement, getting up every morning and writing a Jughead story you know, they're easy, you just he just doesn't like Big Apple, and he wants to eat. He wants to eat a lot. Um, <laughs> he's the ultimate stoner. Um, yeah, totally. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I just I don't know. I I always sort of wanted to try to do everything. You know, as far as the Authority and the X Men go, the Authority I think was easier than working on the X Men because everybody in the Authority pretty much just has one power, and and you know I got to tap into my sort of science fiction bent and and try to have some fun with that and and just sort of play around with readers expectations and i loved the idea of a city of infinite jennies and and all that stuff and i don't know how how completely happy i am with any of that stuff that i did or how good a job i actually did but you know i tried and with the x-men though they they all have so many powers it seems (laughs) like other than the the early ones where it's just like i my you know open a visor and blast stuff at people it's like it got to the point in the 90s where it seemed like every character had like eight different powers and you know at some point all of them had a power to just aim their hand at somebody and blast energy at them yeah. so it it I, I have trouble keeping track of too many powers which is why i like the street level characters and why i like the the sort of more espionage stuff in captain america because you know it's really easy to 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 keep track of all that stuff and you know, the X-Men, the funnest part of the X-Men is it, it is basically a giant romance comic. You know, it's a yeah. giant soap opera, and that's a lot of fun. But, um, yeah, I, I, I feel a little bit more comfortable on books like Daredevil or Captain America or, like, Gotham Central, where I can I can write the more, you know, reality, reality-based, you know, for, for lack of a better word. <laughs> Semi, semi-believable. <laughs> Semi, semi-reality-based. Well, at least, you know, where, where every character doesn't have eight different powers. It just, it just gets to be hard to figure out how to make the fights work. When, yeah. you know, I talked to Marv Wolfman about this years ago. He said the biggest problem with the Teen Titans was that Kid Flash could have solved everything before the rest of them even got to the Titans jet. <laughs> you know? And it's the same thing with the X-Men. It's like if Nightcrawler's there... The, Pretty much the power of teleportation is all you need. You know, I, I, I remember when uh, Mark Millar and, and John Romita did that, that uh, run on Wolverine where yep. there was that Gorgon guy who supposedly has a thousand superpowers. And I'm like, well, name them. <laughs> you know, like, what are the thousand? Because if he has teleportation, he doesn't really need the other 999, because that's pretty much all you need. <laughs> that was the, you that was teleport, the... you can win any fight. <laughs> yeah, that was the one frustrating thing about that storyline, is because it was just like he seemed unbeatable, and it just and they never really explained it. That's a good point. So, <laughs> well, it's, you know, that's I like the the whole. You know, I like that storyline a lot, actually. But it's yeah. just it just. Mark has that facility, and I just don't have it. Like Mark probably could name the other 999 superpowers, <laughs> even if one of them is, is you know, I can always step on an ant, you know, or something. <laughs> like Mark could probably name that because 
you know, he thinks in, in, in a, in a different way about that stuff than I do, which is, which is something I'm jealous of with, with his, uh, his big superhero fights. You yeah. Know? So he also has Brian Hitch some, most of the time. So you can go and then 5,000 people appear and, and he'll actually draw it all. <laughs> Whereas most of us have to write 5,000 people appear to get the artist to draw 50. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, you're almost done with Daredevil. You've, you've been yeah. on it for a while, handing it off to Andy Diggle. Now, when Bendis gave it to you, you you got Matt being stuck in prison. His life's completely yeah. wrecked. And I remember before we we knew who was taking over, we thought whoever that next guy is, he's screwed. And yeah. you you picked it up and did a really good good job with it. Now, now, are you leaving Diggle with a big mess? Or yeah, totally. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's the plan. That's why I decided to leave there because I realized it would be a really, really fucked place to leave the next guy. Oh, and, uh, I mean, Brian is one of my best and oldest friends and, and we planned that, you know, but, but I basically had told him, you know, here's what I'm thinking about doing with Daredevil and, and, you know, I'm thinking at the end of my first storyline, he'll go to jail for all the stuff that happened in years. And he's like, well, how would you like to ha- have your storyline begin with him in jail? And I was like, Okay, because <laughs> I, was, I was figuring there's no possible way anyone will quit reading the book at that point, which was the big fear, was that people would jump ship. And, mm-hmm. and so when I was, uh, I think I was plotting out the, the Return of the King storyline, and I, and I got to the point where I knew, you know, where it was going to end and what was going to happen with Matt's life at that point, and, and, and I just thought, you know, if I was going to leave the book, this would be the best place to do it. And I knew at some point in the next year or two, I would probably have to leave a book because I was taking on so much other work and screenwriting possibilities were coming up. And I just thought, I don't really want to leave Daredevil, but I don't think there's going to be another really, really fucked place to leave the next writer after this for a while. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have to leave without, without like sort of... <laughs> leaving the next writer with the daredevil challenge basically so <laughs> so i just you know i i was on a plane to new york when i when i realized that and i got to i got to the office and pulled my editor aside and i said so i think issue 500 is going to be my last issue actually and uh and he was like what <laughs> and then i explained my reasoning and he was like oh okay yeah that does make sense and it is one of those you know like i fear for for andy not only is he the first Brit to ever write Daredevil, but he's he's picking up you know at a really really messed up spot. So, and I assume and I assume that <laughs> assume that involves Kingpin's return. I know you don't want to probably reveal what's happening, but I mean you're building up and what you've done with the Kingpin I think is really interesting because you've made it you know this kind of big you know fat criminal guy who you know is the is the villain. You've made him relatable. Yeah, you know, to the point where you kind of you kind of feel bad for it. You kind of feel bad for him at this point. Well, you did back in the Miller days too, the Frank Miller issues, like when his wife got blown up, and he and he was kind of like I I like that that era of Kingpin a lot. So you know, and and yeah, he is the the you know a really really bad guy. But I, I, you know, I I like the I like trying to make take those characters and make them you know relatable. I you know one of my favorite Marvel projects that I did was the uh, Books of Doom, which was. A sort of life story of Doctor Doom up until the point where he seized the throne, and I liked getting into his head and and really kind of seeing him narrate his own story where he's the hero of the story. Yeah. You know, there was no bad guys in that. There were everybody, you know, everybody but him was the bad guy basically. <laughs> and uh, so I really, I really like taking those characters and trying to add dimension to them and make them more relatable, though. You know, wait till you see the next few issues. So Kingpin is 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 not all he. Uh, 
is showing to people, that's for sure. But yeah, I'll tell you, the, the end of 500, of course, is Matt and the King can get married. Wow. Because <laughs> they're legalizing gay marriage in New York anyway. Right, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't, they don't yeah. travel to Iowa. Yeah, they don't have to. They don't have to go anywhere, Patterson's. No. <laughs> Wouldn't that be the best ending? <laughs> it really would. <laughs> yeah. All this fighting all these years has just been about unrequited love. Yeah, they exactly. Do. There's your romance comic. That's what the wife was trying to say. Oh man. <laughs> yeah, and then and then the book comes back and it's the many loves of Matt Murdock. <laughs> Number one. That's a great direction to take it, and I applaud that. That's fantastic. Yeah, well, that's what Diggle wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, well, there'll be almost no internet reaction from that at all. Yeah, yeah. none. <laughs> none. Um, Speaking of, of, I guess, taking a bad guy and, and reforming him or showing the layers of him, uh, when, when you're writing Incognito and, and you've got sort of a main character who's a bastard, I mean, what, <laughs> what are you thinking about in order to make the audience sort of care about what happens to him? Um, boy, I don't know. <laughs> I just write it how it feels right. <laughs> uh, honestly, I, just, uh, I think all of us at some level have, especially if you've ever worked a job, have that sort of, hatred of all humanity and, and the desire to, you know, if you could do anything and get away with it. I think that's something like what 100 Bullets kind of started out being, like, yeah. like what if you could murder anybody and get away with it? And, you know, the, the idea of this is, is much more complex. It's, you know, what if you used to be, you know, a guy like Henry Hill where the rules didn't apply to you and suddenly you have to, like, be a nobody, be a schlub. That's that's kind of where it spun out of was that, that last scene in Goodfellas where yeah. I was... I was always thinking, well, I want to see the the movie that happens after this. I want to see, you know, well, you, Goodfellas you saw, two, the 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 boring years. Like, but did you would, did you, that would you actually saw, be? <laughs> did you see my Blue Heaven? With hey, Steve Martin? <laughs> is that the Steve Martin one? No, I don't think yeah. I watched that one. Oh, I, I you've got to rent uh, that then. Yeah. I saw the whole ten yards and the whole. I saw the whole nine yards and the whole. I don't oh, know yeah. if I've seen the no. whole ten yards. I'm pretty are, sure I saw the whole nine yards. But those are bad. Those are terrible. My Blue Heaven. No, my Blue Heaven is good. I mean, it's 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 jokey and it's it's a comedy, but I mean, it it the, and the, and like Nora Ephron did it, I think, and like oh, really? and and the premise was was it was a sequel to Goodfellas. It was that same oh, idea. Really? So, yeah, so you should check it out. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, but so. oh, I'll anyway. have to check that out when I'm done with Incognito. <laughs> I mean, they really took like, like my, one of my favorite super one of my favorite uh, comic book movies is History of Violence, uh, yep. the one that David Cronenberg made that Absolutely. Scott Olson wrote. I love that movie i like it better than the book actually and uh i just like that idea of somebody who used to be you know somebody else sort of becoming you know something new but with incognito it's more the guy is sort of forced to be in this world as his only means of survival and and he hates it <laughs> and so i liked the idea of like what would you do if you were like that and you had these powers and you know but you can't use them the way you used to and they start to come back like what do you do do you do you start going out and like stopping crimes just so that you can feel alive again and and you know what does that do to you over time do you start to actually you know do you do you not even realize that you start to care about people if you're living around them and and you know it sort of gets into the nature of good and evil to some degree you know uh, of you know human nature and and why you know like I think evil is is incredibly you know evil and selfishness and things like that are are just incredibly selfish and easy things. I think you know it's much harder to to have compassion for people and it's much harder to to try to be a decent person. You know that's why we see you know 
so many, you know, conservatives who claim to be Christians who, who want to trample all over everyone else's rights and not pay taxes and, and hoard all their money. And, you know, like, you know, I, I know good conservatives, but it seems like the most ones that you see on TV, I'm just like, how is it, you know, how, why do you have to be so fucking evil? Yeah. You know, and it just really seems like that. And, and so that's kind of a lot of what the series is actually about is about the you know, human nature and, and, and which one is harder and which one is easier and which one is more rewarding. And, and you know, it, it gets to that within this really fucked up story about a guy who in the first scene puts on a Santa costume and date rapes a girl at the office party. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a good way to start. <laughs> yeah, which I don't advocate. <laughs> Why? Just FYI. Why foot around? <laughs> Just get to the point. Yeah, <laughs> Santa rapists. Um, yeah. I guess the one last thing that I, I wanted to ask you about before we get going is is a project you're working on, uh, the Marvels project. Um, oh yeah. How how's how's that going? Is is it is it difficult to reinvent the origin of the Marvel universe? Oh, not <laughs> at all. It's all there. <laughs> I mean, conveniently, they did it the first time already. Um, no, it's it's been a blast actually. And wait till people see Steve Epting's art on this. It's it's by far the best art he's he's done in his entire career. Um, and it's it's kind of a dream project for both of us, I think. This was, you know, I, I realized when Tom offered me the job, I went and looked at everything and sort of did some research and got my friend Justin Evans to, to help me research the early days of, of Marvel and realized that there was so much fertile material there that, you know, I mean, the only time we've seen it done any justice in the way modern comics are told was Marvel's, which was sort of the beginning of, of you know, I think the way modern comics are told, this, yeah. this sort of mm-hmm. widescreen, you know, broad, you know, taking the stuff seriously. And really the first issue of Marvel's goes over, you know, 10 years of stuff, <laughs> basically. It's like, so to be able to, to sit there and, and tell this epic story that, you know, I, I try, I'm trying as hard as possible not to just cover the same stuff that was in Marvels, but to look back at these characters and, and the time period and, and tell this really sort of character-driven espionage story about those early days, the pre-war, you know, pre-war days of, of the Marvel Universe is really a lot of fun because I'm able to weave, you know, real history with fake Marvel history, and yeah. and that's just been a blast. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we get to see the first time the Submariner, you know, like actually comes into contact with surface people and why he hates them, and and you know, okay. it's it's really a lot of fun to to sort of get to the the espionage aspects of that because you realize when you look back at that era of of the real world, you know, there was so much espionage going on, you know, pre-war and, you know, during the early days of the war in Europe and, and you know, but before America got in and, and looking at the Marvel history of, you know, wow, a human torch is created and, you know, a German scientist, you know, defects to America to, you know, to help create the super soldier and, you know, all this stuff. And, and you look at that and you think, this is pretty fascinating, you know, and, and a lot of it has not been really approached in any way in the way we tell com- the comic stories these days. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll be able to actually get into, you know, how the Human Torch decided he was a person in some way or another and, and oh, wow. decided that he was a hero, you know, because there was this whole period of time where when he was, after he escaped and learned to control his flame, where he actually became a cop in New York for a while. So wow. we'll, we'll be able to actually tell this sort of, sweeping historical epic and you know each character gets you know 
gets their own story in, in a way, and, and they all kind of weave around each other. So it's it's a lot of fun. I, I keep saying it's kind of like the right stuff for the Marvel Universe, but it really is. It's, you know, as if Ross, if, uh, if, uh, um, John Lacari had written the right stuff, <laughs> you know, or, or Graham Greene or somebody, you know, not that well, I'm nearly the writer either of those guys were, but. Well, well that's what's interesting, because, like, DC's really mined the golden age with the JSA and the idea of legacies in their universe and stuff like that. Marvel really hasn't touched on the golden age that much at all, other than that it, one issue of Marvel's. So, yeah, I mean, they did in the, in the, uh, when uh, I was growing up, there was the Invaders, you know, yeah. which, I, which I loved, and, uh. Well, I meant more in recent days, I mean, like, Avengers yeah, West no, Coast, not, maybe? I mean, I mean we deal like, with yeah. it in. Yeah, we deal with it in Cap with our flashbacks and and things like that. But yeah, it's not something that that they've spent a lot of time doing. So you know, I mean, that was the other thing when when Tom called me up to offer me the job. It was really the, you know, this is going to be the you know the centerpiece of Marvel's 70th anniversary, and it's like wow, wow well you know that's pretty amazing. And to do this this thing, if people want to know, like how so how did things start in the Marvel universe? This will be the project you can go. You know, you can give them this this book when it's out and you know, uh, no pressure there project like that yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well conveniently i've got you know all the material is there and i get to invent a lot of cool stuff but you know even just picking through you know the stuff they did in the modern days that that dealt back with those pastimes you, know, you can find out like oh who were the german spies that were over here and you know it doesn't take you know but 10 minutes of research to find out who those people actually were and you can figure out what they were doing, you know. So it's right. like that's really neat, you know, that this that there's this big untold espionage story actually, and I get to tell it. Cool. When you're reading through all those golden age comics, I mean, as as a comic writer, and obviously like you study how comics are made and how stories are told, were you was there anything sort of surprising about reading that stuff back then? Did you see stuff you didn't expect to, or? Not really. I mean, I've read a lot of that stuff growing up and in the reprints and stuff like that and you know some of them are amazing you know you got bill everett and and there's a lot of really cool art in that but but you know most of it is written for five-year-olds or less you know <laughs> so it, it's 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 not you know it's nothing to write home about most of it. <laughs> there's some cool art but most of the stories are pretty basic and you know they're eight page or eleven page stories and in giant you know books that had tons of stories but the most interesting character to me that i've come across in this is the angel who was in the first issue of marvel comics but the angel and kazar were actually the only two characters that survived from when martin goodman's publishing line was doing pulp magazines and then wow. became and then started publishing uh timely comics like the angel and kazar both came over to be comic book characters but none of the other ones did and so the angel has this crazy pulp pulp hero history that's sort of like this weird doc savage meets you know i don't even know what kind of history and he's got a really fascinating backstory and and is a really really intense and interesting character and and he's not even around in modern times so I, I thought that was really fascinating. To I, I love the the pulp roots of of comic books, and I think you know I always regret that comics got so far away from the pulp roots and sort of sissified themselves almost instantly. Because you know it's different when you've got pictures of things happening instead of sentences. Because you don't expect a four year old to read necessarily like an eighty page pulp story so that he finds out that you know the spider is disemboweling people and strangling them with their own entrails. You know. <laughs> But uh, but you know in the comic books that's a little that's that's kind of a no no. <laughs> <laughs>
But you know, we forgot Batman used to carry a gun, and Superman right. used to used to throw slumlords off the roofs of tenements and stuff and kill them. So <laughs> yeah, it was a lot. It was a lot harsher back then. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's no way you can be a human torch and throw fireballs at bad guys and not kill them. Right. <laughs> so I like being able to sort of address that stuff in a more modern way and, and to sort of get into the horror of you know Nazi experimentations to try to create the super soldier and, and things like that because. You know, why did Dr. Erskine, you know, defect to America? Like, right. well, look who he was working for. So there's there's really interesting stuff in there to, to, to really get into. And cool. when when's that? When do we see that? July. I think it's July. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the summer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I can't wait to see that Epting art. He's he's just been so good uh, working with yeah, you. There's a big preview. We have a, our prologue uh, preview. It should be in, I think, this issue, some some upcoming issue of Wizard. It's we we got it all done, so it must be really soon. Well, uh, you got to get going, and uh, we we covered a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm amazed at right. our effectiveness. So well, thanks, uh, thank guys. you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> We want to thank Ed for spending some time talking to us. Make sure you check out all his work and get to ifanboy.com to comment on this show and find all sorts of other great stuff there. Thanks. 